They're coming to get you, Barbara. Keep watching the sky. Well, a, a boy's best friend is his mother. Don't fall asleep. I want to play a game. The blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. Children of the night, what music they Good evening, boys and ghouls, and welcome back to Saturday Night Spookorama, the podcast examining the history of horror films from the golden age to the modern day. We are coming to you live in crystal clear Spookasonic audio from our luxury studio in the sewers of New York City, where we call them cannibalistic humanoid underground friends. I'm your host, Thad Kelly, and with me as always are my co-hosts, Alex Kump. Hi. Justice Hepburn. Hey, everybody. And Sabrina Gall. Hey, guys. And our stalwart producer, Mr. Andrew Barnes. Hey, everybody. This is episode 10 and tonight we're digging into two horror films from the high-water mark of Hollywood history, 1939. First up, we're talking about the first Sherlock Holmes mystery starring Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce, the Hound of the Baskervilles. Then we're taking a look at the first horror reboot and a movie that would revive a horror movie empire, Universal's Son of Frankenstein. So how are we doing today, guys? Doing so good. I'm happy to hear that. Yeah, I'm lying, but that's okay. Good, good. <laughs> We, we always have to lie. <laughs> All right, so we better get into this. What do you say, gang? <laughs> Let's go. Not a bad idea. All right, so today we're talking about 1939, a couple movies from that year. And for a little bit of context, uh, 1939 is considered by film historians to be the single finest year of Hollywood's golden age, or perhaps in Hollywood history. Though that's a pretty big claim. Yeah, let's uh, call the fuck down historians. Yeah, I don't know. That's exactly the kind of thing that they'd like to crank off about D didn't they know that avatar came out in 2009 that's what a year it was what a year <laughs> it was so 1939 was uh, a year that featured uh, a lot of classic films being made and it was also probably the commercial height of hollywood you know gone with the wind was released that year and adjusted for inflation it is still the highest grossing film of all time and will never literally never be topped it's not possible just because the structure of film releases is completely different now uh, but it was also the year that the wizard of oz was released uh, mr smith goes to washington uh, stagecoach the very famous early john ford western oh and gulliver's travels gulliver's travels of course the two films that we're talking about today and uh, and a couple other pictures that i want to mention one of which is the hunchback of notre dame which stars my main dude charles lawton <laughs> and maureen o'hara uh, in an early film role for her. This is potentially a candidate for our show just because the uh, silent version of The Hunchback of Notre Dame, which starred Lon Chaney, uh, was an important horror movie, proto-horror kind of movie. But the 39 Hunchback is a great movie, but uh, it's really focuses more on sort of the epic drama aspect of the story rather than like monster makeup, you know. But I did want to mention that. And another one uh, that was released in 39 was Of Mice and Men, which stars spectacular character actor Burgess Meredith. And in the role of Lenny stars someone we'll be talking about a lot very soon, Lon Chaney Jr., who would go on to become probably the biggest breakout star of horror films in the 40s after uh, starring in The Wolfman in 1941. And there were a couple other less famous but notable horror movies that I want to talk about. One of which is the sound version of The Cat and the Canary. That had obviously been a silent film. We talked about that, I think, way back in episode one. 
uh, sort of this classic old Dark House movie. But the 39 version was the first sound version. It starred Bob Hope. And it kind of uh, was the beginning of the horror comedy thing. But we're going to talk about that more a little bit later. So I didn't think it was worth watching. And, uh, and then the other sort of noteworthy movie was from Universal, and that was a historical epic about Richard III called Tower of London. So that starred Basil Rathbone as Richard III, uh, Basil Rathbone, who starred in both of the pictures we'll be talking about in a moment, uh, as well as Boris Karloff as a fictional executioner. Uh, it also starred, uh, not starred, but it featured Vincent Price in an early film role before he would break into horror movies the next year with The Invisible Man Returns. Uh, so those were the movies I wanted to talk about. So uh, what do we say we get into The Hound of the Baskervilles? Woof. <laughs> Ow! The Hound of the Baskervilles begins on the foreboding moors of Devonshire, where we watch as the elderly Sir Charles Baskerville flees from an unknown assailant, only to collapse and die on the steps of his remote manor home, Baskerville Hall. At the urging of Sir Charles's friend and physician, Dr. Mortimer, the coroner pronounces Sir Charles to have died from a heart attack. However, Dr. Mortimer goes to the famous detective Sherlock Holmes and confides that he believes Sir Charles has fallen victim to the legendary hound that is said to stalk the moors and to have killed several generations of Baskervilles. Mortimer asks Holmes to get to the bottom of the legendary and help protect Sir Charles's nephew, Sir Henry, who is about to arrive from Canada to claim Baskerville Hall. When Sir Henry arrives in London, a mysterious assailant attempts to shoot him from the window of a hansom cab. Holmes sends Dr. Watson with Sir Henry to Baskerville Hall, where they meet the suspicious butler Barryman and neighbors, the brother and sister Jack and Beryl Stapleton. Their first night, Watson and Sir Henry notice Barryman signaling to someone on the moor and head out to investigate. They are attacked by a filthy bearded man who escapes into the night. Sir Henry falls in love with Beryl, and he and Watson attend dinner with the Stapletons and other neighbors, including the litigious Franklin and Dr. Mortimer and his wife. They conduct a seance to speak to the late Sir Charles, but their entreaties are answered only by chilling howls coming from the moor. Holmes appears on the scene the next day, having disguised himself as a peddler to both investigate in secret and bother Watson. <laughs> that night, the two observe as the mangy, mysterious man is chased off a cliff, falling to his death. They return to Baskerville Hall, and Holmes confirms his suspicions that the stranger who attacked Watson was an escaped convict and Mrs. Barryman's brother, explaining why her husband was signaling to him that night. The two investigators feign returning to London, claiming to have solved the mystery, then doubling back to catch the real killer red-handed, for the murder of Sir Charles was committed by none other than Jack Stapleton, who, unbeknownst to anyone, was a relative of the Baskervilles, and stood to inherit the hall should the heirs die. To enact his plan, he exploited the legend of the hound and hid a vicious dog on the moor, giving it stolen clothes belonging to his victims so that the dog would have their scent. Holmes is attacked by the dog but shoots it and reveals Jack's crimes, sending him running into the deadly Grimpen Mire. Sir Henry and Beryl are married and Holmes celebrates with cocaine. <laughs> the end. So, gang, what did we think of The Hound of the Baskervilles, 1939? Oh, this story is just is so long-winded that it's it's really difficult to to follow with all the characters and everyone tr um, all dressed basically the same with basically the same hairstyle. Goddamn Victorian costumes. <laughs> yeah. I think the problem with this film is that not very much leaves an impression except for Basil Rathbone as as Holmes, who's phenomenal. He's great. He's an excellent Holmes. And he sort of completely takes over the movie. 
Which is fine, it's a Sherlock Holmes movie, but like, he's still the most and maybe only real noteworthy thing about it. Yeah, I mean, I my biggest takeaway from this movie is I understand completely why Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce immediately became popular as Holmes and Watson mm-hmm. and would go on to make like 13 more movies, a radio show, you know, th- they would become the version of, of Holmes and Watson, even though, as I think any... Uh, Arthur Conan Doyle aficionado would say uh, Nigel Bruce's Watson is not very much like <laughs> the character from these stories. Yeah, and it, it, speaking of the stories, you know, this is uh, this is a very very Watson centric plot, and it's I the the only reason I'm uh, I'm fond of this story is because it gets it gives a lot of um, characterization to Watson, and I felt it was lacking a little bit. Though I do think the 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 both our Sherlock and Watson in this um, this telling do play very well off each other. Yeah, the two of them were old friends, you know, uh, at the oh. time when this movie was made. The two actors, and uh, they've got a lot of chemistry together. Yeah, you know, even though you don't have the best Watson, it's still a fun time to watch them interact with each other. You can tell they like to pal around a bit, uh, just as like people. And certainly of the investigative duo pairs that we've seen in this podcast so far, they are some of the more entertaining to watch. Mm-hmm. Have we seen many investigative duo pairs? You know, it's been a long life, that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess I should get, get out of the way and, and say I had never seen this movie before. I was deciding we should watch it in a reputation alone. And uh, I came away pretty satisfied. I, I, I liked it a, a good deal. But a lot of my appreciation comes from the fact that, you know... I welcome anyone who wants to take issue with me calling this a horror film. And I would say, yeah, you're probably right. But it is certainly inspired by the contemporary horror films of its time. It's just dripping with this gothic gloom. Uh, I love all the stuff out on the moors and, uh, you know, that sense of old world dread that the the movie has. I think the production design of the film is is really spectacular. Yeah, um, I don't want to bring up the what's a horror movie fight because I did that once already and got (laughs) shut down real hard. (laughs) So uh, I'm staying out of that conversation for the rest of my life. uh, That was about something that's pretty much a horror movie, though. I, you know, you can say everything (laughs) that you want. Yeah, I think that the... The most like traditional like horror-y scene from this is the seance scene, right? Um, which is really fun yeah. to watch and really well lit and just uh, designed. But other than that, it's just sort of your standard chasing people around movie. Well, I would say that uh, in terms of the seance scene, this adaptation is very true to the story. You know, it follows it basically very closely, except for the seance scene, which was completely invented, which is interesting. Mm. You know, they they wanted to have that horror element to it. Hmm. Yeah, I did. En- I also did definitely enjoyed uh, see- whenever the hound made made it in. I was there was some. Uh, it was definitely an ambiance film. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, you got those great howls throughout the movie. I don't know if do dogs make that sound? Do dogs howl like that, or is that wolves? Have you ever listened to a husky howl? Yes, <laughs> yes, they can. Yeah. I've only ever had small dogs, so I don't know. But uh, also, I want to say that maybe this is my memory of the Wishbone adaptation, and this isn't true. (laughs) Uh, But I recall the dog in the story being uh, like covered in phosphorus or something that so it would make it glow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's true to the that's true to the um, canon. I'm so glad Wishbone didn't lie to me. But um, (laughs) Wishbone will never lie to you. Murder a dog. Uh, probably. I don't think Jack Stapleton cared about the longevity of this dog. <laughs> I just say, like, the, the longevity of this plan also doesn't make sense, you know? Like, you're just gonna fucking kill some dude and then be like, all right, well, that's that, and move on with your life? No. 
You're killing people fucking forever. <laughs> <laughs> well, if if my uh, my constant watch of Dexter has anything to uh, <laughs> to back that up, <laughs> but uh, I, I thought it was an interesting choice that in this film, first of all, you see the dog early, uh, and it's just a dog, but it's like kind of scary. You know, it's just uh, just a scary looking dog. That's all it is. And I think it's actually kind of effective, like that the film doesn't try and put any more. I don't know. It, it, it doesn't try to make it seem supernatural. It's just a fucking scary looking dog. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't want to fight that dog. That dog would kick my ass. No, it's not I a think spooky hound. It's just like a dog. Like ah, that's a yep. Ah, dog. Yeah. <laughs> I think this says more about me than the movie. But I was not terribly scared of the dog, and I was just like, oh, puppy. That's so cute. <laughs> Even, like It was definitely a cute dog. It's a very cute dog. It's so big and flopsy. I like that dog. Seems sweet. <laughs> I don't know, man. <laughs> I, I'm very rarely scared by dogs in movies because I just want to pet them. That's that's where I'm at. <laughs> I'm sure that the dog that was acting in this movie was very nice. I'm sure. <laughs> so it, it's become a spookerama tradition that every time John Carradine shows up in a movie, I go... Hey, it's John Carradine. <laughs> so I want to say, hey, it's John Carradine. <laughs> uh, he plays Barryman, the butler, in this. Uh, uh-huh. That's all. That's all I really want to say. Yeah, he's a good creepy butler. That's all that matters. Yeah, he's a creepy. He's a creepy guy in this. The supporting cast plays their roles very well. I think you know you've got uh, Lionel Atwell as uh, Doctor Mortimer. You've got that Scottish guy as the comic character. Yeah, they're all good. They're all fine. Yeah, they're all fine. They just, I don't know, they didn't really leave an impression on me. I sort of, towards the end of the movie, I was i was sort of like, all right, yeah, I guess that generic guy was the bad guy. And these guys weren't bad, I guess. I don't know. I It, it prevented me from getting involved in the mystery because I wasn't really invested in anyone besides... Besides Holmes and Watson. Yeah, I, I would think. agree with that. I don't, I, everyone was just sort of a person. I wasn't like uninterested in them, but they were all just sort of around. Every character seems like they should have just been like a uh, two line extra in like a dinner party scene. Mm. <laughs> yeah. I would say that my, my take on this film is it, it's a movie that like if somebody was like, hey, watch this movie from the 30s. It's really good. I'd watch it and I'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah, this is good. I didn't have, like, a really strong emotional attachment to it. But it's just like, yeah, no, this is this is good. Yeah, you're right. I feel like I've been a little negative on the movie. I did enjoy it. I just mostly enjoyed it for for Holmes wandering about being smarter than everyone else, which is fun. <laughs> like, it's fun to watch that. <laughs> no, it's not. He's a pedantic asshole, like, 90% of the time. <laughs> they open the movie with him just, like, shaming his partner by being like, <laughs> Tell me about this fucking walking stick. Oh, you can't because you're a fucking idiot. His partner? Yeah. What is this? The BBC Sherlock? Oh. <laughs> well, I think it's interesting because uh, Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce were, for many years, absolutely the most famous duo to play these characters. But I think if you were to actually talk to fans today, nobody really contemporary has ever really watched these, you know, except for film nerds. Like, most people would either know uh, BBC Sherlock or the Robert Downey Jr. Jude Law movies. Mm-hmm. What was that modern one on, like, ABC? Oh, yeah, with uh, with Lucy Lowe. Yeah. Yeah, she's so good. Let me tell you, gang, if you wanted to watch movies where Basil Rathbone talks to Lionel Atwell and a scary bearded guy peeks over the edge of something and then throws a rock down, <laughs> boy, do I have a couple films for you. <laughs> But yeah, how about that fog, guys? That was exciting. All over the moor. 
I think the more sets in this are great. Uh, I think they're really cool. I mean, it's like obviously like a, a soundstage. Oh, God. Anytime rocks appear in these movies, oh my they God. look so fake. <laughs> but, you know, I love it. It's great. It, yeah, definitely looks like they are placed in front of a picture and then there are two touchable rocks, much <laughs> like watching a Scooby-Doo episode. <laughs> <laughs> Something's going to come out of there. They're not on the background layer. <laughs> I did just want to say, Beryl and Sir Henry, they're fucking romancing out on the moor in the shadow of these uh, Neolithic monuments. And she says something like, you know, uh, Jack says that these remains are 50,000 years old. And let me tell you, that is not an accurate figure. Jack is full of shit. 5,000 maybe, but 50, no. Someone's trying to sleep with someone else. I'm just saying that, like, if you're listening to Benadryl, then, like, you're listening to the wrong character in this movie. (laughs) (laughs) Another thing this film has in common with contemporary horror films is that it has an incredibly boring pair of romantic leads that I don't care about. Yeah, right? Uh, I want to talk for a second. The one thing that was very difficult for me with this movie is the fact that there is little to no score in the entire movie. Yeah, there's no score, yeah. It's kind of like watching a play that doesn't know it's a play. Well, it's like a weird throwback. You know, it feels like the movies we watched at the beginning of this podcast instead of movies we're watching in episode 10 of this podcast. Yeah. Mm. Um, But Alex, yes, to get back to your uh, movie and plot scrumblings, um, I totally agree. And um, having relatively recently read the uh, the novel, it, it is equally difficult to get through. It doesn't help that, you know, it starts with a short story about these people you don't know or care about, which was much easier to parse through in the in the film. I will give it that. For our listeners, it's an interestingly put together part where our Dr. Mortimer, I believe, is uh, reading the short history of the Hound of the Baskervilles. And he, he, you know, speaks a little bit in fades a small acted portion of these chummy guys for several minutes as opposed to 20 pages. Yeah, that's a part I alighted in my summary. Because it's not super necessary to the plot. You know, you could just say, ah, there's a hound that kills people. (laughs) But it's like, let me tell you the tale of Sir Hugo, who kidnapped a woman and then a hound killed him. Yeah, that's that's, that's basically it. And uh, if you want to read the novel, which is pretty decent, don't let me me tell you (laughs) otherwise. I'm not a huge fan of it, but uh, that's fine. I do have to say, I do love that scene where he's like, oh, I have this. It's a storybook about what happened. Oh, no, don't read it. Let me read it to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he's holding up this this book that's like three inches thick. And it's like, oh, it's short. Let me read it to you. <laughs> I think it's worth noting that Sherlock Holmes stories had been adapted since the very earliest days of cinema. You know, silent versions, sound versions. By the time this movie had come out, Sherlock Holmes adaptations were nothing new. But this was the first one to set the stories in Arthur Conan Doyle's time. Every other adaptation up to this point had been set in contemporary times, which is sort of interesting. Um, but anyhow, uh, along the lines of uh, like when the adaptations are set, this movie was a big hit in 1939, uh, so much so that that same year... They made another Sherlock Holmes movie called The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. also came out in 39. I haven't looked into this deeply enough to say how many of them were made at 20th Century Fox. But eventually Fox was like, yeah, we're not going to make any more of these. And Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce actually moved over to Universal. So the last few of these films made in the 40s were made at Universal. And they had a distinctly more like horror cast to them. They were like weird pseudo horror movies. But those films were set in contemporary times, which was the 1940s. Also, this was the only 
Lee, Basil Rathbone, Nigel Bruce, Holmes film that was based on an Arthur Conan Doyle story. The rest were all original. Hmm. I did want to mention another piece of uh, Hound of the Baskervilles trivia. The character of the butler in the story is named John Barrymore. Mm -hmm. But in this, uh, obviously, he is Barryman. And the reason why is because when this film was made, John Barrymore was a very famous actor. He's the brother of our old pal Lionel Barrymore, who appeared in The Devil Doll. Oh. And they were both uh, very famous actors at the time. So they were like, no, we can't name him John Barrymore. <laughs> also, John Barrymore is uh, Drew Barrymore's grandfather. Yeah. I was hoping oh, so. Oh, wow. Yep, they, they have buried more and more over the years. Hey! hey. I regret that. You shouldn't. No, good. don't say that. That's not true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Is there anything else we want to talk about? Uh, I was reading my Penguin Encyclopedia of Horror and the Supernatural, which is a very nice resource. Uh, it says that this film is, and I quote, plottingly directed by Sidney Landfield. Um, I'm not sure that I share that assessment. I would call it workmanlike. This is, of course, before auteur theory, so we can't really say that the director is even the chief creative voice in this film. And Sidney Landfield, from what I can tell, was just one of those guys who made, like, 150 movies that no one remembers. So, it all works. It's all fine. There's some tracking shots. I don't know. It's kind of interesting. There's a, there's a handful of uh, reasonably long shots that aren't bad. People talking, but that's pretty par for the course uh, for the... Uh for 1930s film so yeah i mean no it's it's all fine uh, i like that shot where uh the doctor is telling the story and you see the the story happening through the pages that's kind of cool and the pages turn and stuff that was nice that's... that was so nice yeah it was it was nice yeah and i think that like uh there's a lot of scenes of whatever watson and sir henry walking on a moor talking about the plot but I was never like, oh, fuck, get off the more. I just want less, not more. <laughs> hey. I did I did like that every time you were on the more and you had you had uh, your the, the corners darkened a little bit more. Um, so you were like, oh, man, guys, it's foggy. <laughs> I can tell. This is not related to this film, but I just love saying the phrase great Grimpenmeyer. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know, guys. Uh, is there anything else we want to say about the Hound of the Baskervilles? Nah, it was pretty spoopy. Yeah, I don't know. What would you What would you guys say the uh, moral of this story was? Uh, be a cat person. <laughs> uh, if you find a secret hatch on the moor where you suspect uh, a man has been hiding his vicious trained dog in order to impersonate uh, a legendary hound, don't just jump into it. Uh, stay in Canada. That's my... <laughs> yeah, if you happen to be Watson and Sherlock Holmes sends you off on your own, he's probably still watching you. <laughs> I thought that the uh, the costume was, was done pretty well. I thought that was cute. Yeah. No, that really was, actually. <laughs> oh, yeah, I didn't even talk about the deerstalker. Yeah, the, I, well, this is where the image of Sherlock Holmes wearing a deerstalker cap comes from. Oh. Because, like, you know, the, the literary Sherlock Holmes probably would not wear a deerstalker around just because that would be, like, a thing that you wear out in the country. But uh, it became his signature after uh, after this film. Because, of course, they are out in the country in this movie. Guys, would you recommend The Hound of the Baskervilles? Um, I'm going to say probably not, but not like uh, not spitefully. Just sort of like, you know, if you have an interest in it already, like go for it. But I, I wouldn't say if you're looking for any film to watch, that's the one to go for. Yeah, if one of my friends brings up, oh, I'm going to watch the uh, 1939 Hound of the Baskervilles. I won't say, I don't watch it, but I, but I, I will uh, say, you know, it's not my favorite, but you do you, friend. Oh. Such a good friend, Sabrina. 
I'm gonna do my do my best. I feel like there's enough Sherlock Holmes stuff floating around these days that I think it's cool to watch it. Like get watch that and get some context on your Johnny Lee Millers and your uh, Robert Downey Juniors that are running around these days. Yeah, I'm basically going to echo what everyone else said. It was it was good. I wouldn't really recommend it, but not because it was bad. It was just like, yeah, it was fun. I liked it, but uh, it didn't drive me wild. And I guess uh, what I find most interesting about it is the contrast between the contemporary adaptations that people are probably more familiar with today and this really classic adaptation that sort of set the public image of what Sherlock Holmes was all about. So maybe if that kind of thing interests you, go for it. But otherwise, uh, man. You can skip it, I guess. I, I think my, my biggest issue with it is that if it had been any other story, I would have been, I, it probably would have flown much better for me. Um, How Did the Baskervilles is just, is so unnecessarily complicated <laughs> that, um, that it, it's a, it's a, it's a hard enough read that, and it's a, it's just a, it's a difficult watch if you're not either A, watching it really closely or B, um, really good with faces. Shall we uh, get back into it, gang? Yeah, let's go. Sure. So our next film uh, from 1939 is Universal's Son of Frankenstein. Alex, can you tell us what happens in Son of Frankenstein? Son of Frankenstein, directed by Tim Burton, takes place years after Bride of Frankenstein. Henry Frankenstein has died and left his son, Baron Wolf von Frankenstein, his old castle and workshop. He and his wife and his shitty kid move in, finding only hostility from the townsfolk. While settling in, the young Frankenstein meets an old, deformed Igor. He shows Frankenstein the body of his father's monster that is laying in a coma. For reasons that don't make sense, Frankenstein decides he wants to study and uncoma the monster. He is eventually awoken and Igor uses him as a tool for revenge on the men who had previously tried to hang him. When Frankenstein finds out the monster is killing again, he finds Igor and kills him. The monster finds out and kidnaps Frankenstein's kid. He almost kills him, but then, psych, he doesn't. Frankenstein and the local inspector corner the monster and knock him into a conveniently placed sulfur pit. At the end, the Frankensteins leave the castle to the villagers, which I guess is a thing you can do and leave forever. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I have two issues with your with your summary. One, they did actually hang Igor. He was pronounced dead and then came back to life. And two, that sulfur pit was introduced like scene four. Oh, okay, that's true, but it's still conveniently placed for a death. <laughs> Truth. <laughs> I also uh, take issue with your characterization of uh, Wolf Frankenstein's son as shitty. Actually, he's extremely shitty. <laughs> <laughs> but also, guys, he's kind of beautiful. <laughs> he is young Gene Wilder. So for a little bit of background on this film, as I've mentioned in a couple previous episodes, in the years 1937 and 1938, basically no horror films were made by any 
you know, English-speaking studio. And so in 1938, Universal had come under new ownership, and they basically were just dredging out their old catalog. And for whatever reason, in a single Los Angeles theater, they decided to play a double feature of 1931's Dracula and Frankenstein. And this showing was such a huge success that the theater actually played these films for 24 hours consecutively, and tickets were still not available. Damn. Holy shit. Now, it's a little bit hard for us to imagine just because, like, we have home video, but at the time, you know, if a movie was out of theaters, you just couldn't see it anymore. Uh, and so people had obviously had this huge fondness for these movies from uh, seven years earlier, and they were just a huge success when they played it in this uh, second run in a theater in L.A. And so uh, the new executives of Universal smelled blood in the water when it came to making money, and they decided, okay, we're going to revive our most successful series of horror movies, Frankenstein. And specifically with our two most uh, important uh, actors, with uh, Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi. Right, yes. The, the two stars of these hit films that they were playing at this very time. So they decided to uh, make this film which was a huge success for Universal and inspired them to make a bunch of other sort of reboots of their older 30s horror movies uh, over the next few years, some of which would go on into long series, specifically this one, the Frankenstein series and the Mummy series. So anyhow, gang, what did we think of Son of Frankenstein? I really liked this one. This one was a lot of fun. Um, and I really liked how uh, Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi um, were really great. I couldn't tell that Bela Lugosi was Igor for the entirety of the film, even though I went in knowing that Bela Lugosi was Igor. <laughs> and that was incredible. <laughs> no, the, the the whole movie, really just enjoyable. A few shots in, I was nervous that maybe they didn't put as much money into the uh, the backgrounds uh, um, as, they, as they did the sets as much as usual. Uh, but as the movie went on, you could really tell that there there was a whole lot of care put into the put into all all parts of this uh, of this movie. What she said. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Alex. Thank you, Justice. Did you have an uh, have an opinion? Uh, yeah. My opinion was kind of basically meh. I didn't come away from this movie with much because it felt just like a remake a lot of the time like i really liked bella lugosi but i felt like karloff as compared to to bride in the original frankenstein wasn't given much to do he was just sort of a mm -hmm. lumbering monster without much depth for a lot of the movie basil rathbone who was so good in hound of the baskervilles felt like he wasn't really giving it his all in this movie he felt it, it, it sort of felt like he was phoning it in kind of the sets though the sets in this movie are fucking awesome. Yeah, as 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 Alex alluded to in his summary, I have it on sound authority that Tim Burton had his sexual awakening while watching this film. <laughs> Every set in this film is like a you'll long for a right angle when you're watching it. Oh, but it's so beautiful. No, it's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. Yeah, I had a lot of trouble that first scene inside the house where there's these rickety ass looking stairs that like grow around this this wall. I was really scared that that was going to be the whole <laughs> it was going to be the whole movie. Um, <laughs> this blank ass looking uh, castle, and then all of a sudden you get these really beautiful shadows that cast along both the actors and the rest of the set. You get these beautiful curves that that frame that really frame our actors in conversation and. I was 
I th- I'm pretty sure there was an audible gasp as I uh, was watching that. Yeah, no, the the all the the production design of this film is gorgeous. It reminded me a little bit of the Black Cat in that it's all like the interior of the castle is like this stark modernism. These huge like empty spaces that seem so cold and horrible, <laughs> uh, and then you have these gorgeous curbs when you're looking at the gate of Castle Frankenstein where the villagers gather angrily. But I will say, Justice, I agree with you. And it's 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 a common criticism of this film that it's a step backwards for the monster. Yeah. As we talked about when we talked about Bride, Boris Karloff really hated the monster speaking. But I think we all agree that it like made the monster a more sympathetic character and more central to the story. And in this, the monster is mute again and basically is under the control of Igor. And for a Frankenstein movie, the monster is sort of just... I don't want to call him a plot device, but he has a much diminished role compared to Bride and the original, just like you said, Justice. Yeah, and also his shirt in this one is really, really fucking bad. Yeah, he wears a furry vest for some reason. (laughs) But I will say that there's an element of that I'd like, because as I said, this is a reboot. The first two movies, Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein, are basically in continuity with each other. No, they're explicitly in continuity with each other. They are. Like, there's some differences, but, like, for a a 30s, you know, for a pair of 30s movies, they're they're in continuity. Like, this film plays pretty fast and loose with it. You know, like, Wolf Frankenstein goes, and he gets his father's notes, and his father wanted him to continue his experiments. And if you were really serious about, like, you know, the original films, it'd be like, well, no, actually, in both those movies, he disavowed his experiments. You know, and shit like that. Uh, But, you know, that's not really that important. This is a reboot. And something that I really like about it is that it does something different with with this concept. This is a movie that's basically about a battle of wills between Inspector Krogh, Wolf Frankenstein and Igor. And it's it's all about those characters, really. Yeah, sad. I would uh, slightly disagree with you on a um, an earlier statement. Frankenstein definitely uh, played a much uh, the sorry Frankenstein's monster played a much lesser role in in this point. I wouldn't I would I wouldn't use his speech element as a um, as a plus to the to the earlier renditions. Um, I would have put it as a plus had the had the monster used his speech in a more positive or useful way in in Bride of Frankenstein, where it seemed more to be a gimmick. Um, I will definitely agree with you in you and Justice that the I was a little disappointed in really the the whole characterization of the, of the monster. He didn't have um, in both of the both of the previous. Um, Frankenstein films he has this this sense of compassion or or this sense of like I don't really know what I'm doing here but I guess I have to have to live with it that you almost get at the beginning um, in, in the beginning when he's looking in the mirror and seeing how he's just unapproachably ugly um, in his own thoughts I am at is how I took that but it, it's lost from there on then on I was like, I like to make the argument that this this movie's not about the monster. First of all, it's called Son of Frankenstein. So it's like the title is two people away from the actual monster. So fucking who cares? <laughs> I wish it was about the monster because I love the monster. You're right, though. Wait, no. Igor has that whole speech where he's like, this is your brother. 
son of Frankenstein. So therefore, the monster is also son of Frankenstein. Ba bam. <laughs> Look, I'm sorry. I just edited the bride episode today, and like all of that shit is wrong. You're all walking back everything you said in that one. <laughs> <laughs> We're, we're fickle. We're fickle. <laughs> I, I think that this is just like a fun, a fun movie. It moves maybe a little slower than it should. But overall, like, it's just fucking fun. Everything's silly. You know, like, sure, maybe the monster doesn't talk that much, but like he has this weird sort of like, like loving marriage based relationship with Igor. <laughs> and like, they're not flunky. He's not like his like dumb flunky, really. He's just like sort of like a... The strong, silent type. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I agree. This this movie is a lot of fun. And you're right. It's probably a little too long. Like, at 100 minutes, it's like, uh, you know, come on. But it, it doesn't feel its length in a way that sometimes mm -hmm. movies do. And, like, there's a lot of moving pieces to this. There's a lot of characters. Like I said, you know, it's about Wolf and Igor and Inspector Krogh and all these sort of different intersecting plot elements. And it kind of takes its time and gets everything together. And it basically all works, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I would say that it paces itself really well compared to a lot of the movies we've watched in the last handful of weeks. I walked away from this really pleased, um, which... Well, I, I might have been pleased by a whole bunch of the other these other movies. I didn't I, I wouldn't I would never say really pleased. <laughs> I think part of this movie's success is I think it actually has a really good script. Like I think about this scene where uh, Inspector Krogh is basically he's interrogating Wolf Frankenstein and Wolf Frankenstein is playing darts, uh, which is, of course, the inspiration for uh, one of the famous comedic scenes in Young Frankenstein. But uh, that's like a really good, like it, it reminds me of the classes I took uh, in playwriting. <laughs> you know, it, it's it's like- Gio a, would fucking love that. He'd be like, yeah, you gave him something to do. You just like, maybe they're gonna be throwing dots. I don't know, just go for it. Yeah, well, exactly. It's, it's a way to enliven a scene that otherwise be two people sitting in a room talking. And but it also expresses the anxiety that Wolf Frankenstein is feeling because he's fucking whipping these darts into the wall. Mm -hmm. uh, it's like that's that's really cool. I don't know. I thought it was interesting. You said it had a good script, which I think is not inaccurate. But I don't know if this is correct. I just read this on IMDb trivia. Apparently, they didn't have a script while they were filming it and just really wrote scenes. Yeah, moments before they were writing them. And in fact, Bella Lugosi as as Igor wasn't even in the original script, but they knew Bela Lugosi was poor and had to eat. So they like wrote him in. He was set to get like 50 bucks a week or something very, very little. So the, uh, the screenwriter wrote him in to most of the movie so he could like feed his family which is really cool. They actually uh, only finished filming the movie like 12 days before it was supposed to be released or something crazy like that. <laughs> what? what? Oh man, but it was so good. Um, can we talk about how great the inspector was though? Yeah, he's a great character. I have never seen uh, so much comedic potential be taken from a prosthetic and also a uh, non-offensive way. Yeah, he was, he, he was this military man for our listeners, of course. Um, this military man who just who would ha you know have to physically swing his arm back and forth to make it function in any reasonable way, and it was just it was, he was incredible. He had this really great stage presence and was easily super intimidating. There's actually a really lovely scene where earlier in the film, Inspector Krogh he he describes how apparently in the past the monster tore off his arm when he was a little boy. 
he was a little boy. He wanted to be, uh, you know, a general. Uh, you know, he wanted to be in the military, but he says, you know, now because of that, I, I, I'm an inspector in charge of seven gendarmes. And then later on in the movie, you have Wolf Frankenstein's son, who is obviously, I think we can all agree, just fucking horrible. But it's <laughs> not because Garbage. of the script. God it's just awful. because they, they they picked a bad actor and and they directed him poorly. I would like to reiterate my dislike of child actors. That's all I could think of. <laughs> when I watched this movie. Like Sabrina's going to be pissed off. <laughs> yeah, I actually thought that as well. Oh, thanks, guys. But there's a great scene where you know the the child instantly asks like something about his arm. Yeah, the the monster touched his arm. Yeah, and, and the child ends ends up asking like, "Oh, are you a general?" And and Wolf Frankenstein says, "No, no, no. He's he's something better than a general. He's an inspector." You know, and it's like, oh, wow, that's like a really human moment, you know, that like they shared this something and then it gets brought back. It's like really lovely, actually. That's why one of the reasons I like the script so much. There's a great moment at the very beginning of this movie where Wolf and his wife are on a train and he's, you know, he's saying like, oh, my father, you know, he did these experiments and he says, you know, uh, nine out of ten people call the monster Frankenstein. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Which is like a very self-aware. I thought it was cute, you know. I think it, I think it's funny um, that they call the monster Frankenstein, yet they live in the town of Frankenstein. Yeah. Can we talk about Bela Lugosi in this movie for, for a second? Because I think he's just great. I was so glad I couldn't tell he was Bela Lugosi. Yeah, it took me like, you know, 25 minutes into the movie to be like, that's him. Oh, shit. <laughs> no, I, I was literally looking for for a tell for for him. And I just I couldn't find one. And it was amazing. Yeah, I'm sorry that in a previous episode that I said Bella Lugosi can't act because <laughs> apparently he could also do this one other weird character. Well, you associate him so strongly with Dracula. And this is a character that's just the polar opposite. Yeah. You know, he has none of that elegance or refinement. Or, I don't know, he's like a fucking weird, twisted, like, sniveling kind of character. I forgot how funny he is, too, because, you know, he just hits some of those punchlines so well. Absolutely. <laughs> like, when he starts hitting on his neck, so perfect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he says, uh, I had a bone caught in my throat. <laughs> it's, like, it's great. I love it. And and this was the uh, first appearance of um, Igor as a character, correct? Yeah, and and notably Igor in this is not, you know, the the pop culture archetype of Igor is Frankenstein's hunchback assistant, who we remember from Frankenstein as Fritz. But this is an like an unrelated character. To be fair, that he kind of um. So in in the story, Igor is um hanged at the neck and does not die. I think I mentioned that earlier, but. Um, he does really favor one side, so he doesn't maybe doesn't entirely look like a hunchbacked character, but he does look very um, hindered. So perhaps yeah. I, I can see where the characters are conflated, but it's just interesting because something I like about the character is that there's a lot of ambiguity. Like the movie doesn't go out of its way to actually explain like who who is this guy. You know, I love I love that you don't know who he is. And there's this whole weird sort of, you know, they talk about him like, you know, being hung and then dying and coming back to life. And like, you're not sure if it's superstition. You're not sure if it's just sort of like this weird technicality they invented where it's like, well, we said he was dead. So I guess we got to let him keep going about his life. Yeah, exactly. It's like, was it a miraculous survival? Is this like supernatural? You know, it's not clear. And like, where did his relationship with the monster come from? I don't know. I think they met on Grinder. <laughs> I hope <Yes>. so. <laughs> They love each other, man. Yeah, Give it a break. 
<laughs> they both said they were into weird Christ imagery. <laughs> so I really liked the part where um, our son, our uh, born son of Frankenstein, carves out. Um, this is a really, I imagine, iconic scene where um, Maker of Monsters is on uh, the, our son of Frankenstein's uh, or Frankenstein's tomb, and he carves it out with a burning torch and maker of men. Mm. I think I think that was that's probably the scene that sticks out the most, even though it was not necessarily well shot. It just it felt very right. <laughs> I don't know. My favorite shot from the entire film is just the two of them, uh, Igor and Frank- Frankenstein's monster looking out that window in a very silly fashion. (laughs) It might be the single best frame in film history, to be honest. (laughs) True. I think that there's undeniably like a comic element to this film. Like Basil Rathbone has just this, this bizarre comic energy to him. Like he's so fucking nervous and high strung like the entire second half of the movie, it really reminded me of Gene Wilder in Young Frankenstein when he's like struggling to explain himself to Inspector Krogh. I, I don't know. I found something farcical about it. And then specifically at the very end when he <laughs> signs off Castle Frankenstein to the villagers and he says like, well, I'm going to leave now. And everyone cheers. <laughs> that's so good. Yeah, like, so that's good. like, that's a funny moment. I don't know. Uh, I love this movie because you can just tell that everybody working on it from like top on down had so much fun with it mm-hmm. and it's very rare to see such like a commercial endeavor be not just about money but actually about like actual just like entertainment for everyone involved i mean basil rathborn he did get to swing on a rope into frankenstein's monster knocking him into a pit and making him explode which i feel like we haven't talked about enough because that was insane. <laughs> it was yeah, so he good. fell into the sulfur pit, and I was expecting him to stick his thumb thumb up like Terminator 2. I know, right? That's what I was thinking about the whole time, that whole scene. <laughs> Sorry. Can we talk some more about this uh, sulfur pit? <laughs> Why is there a sulfur sure. pit in, like, the tower of a castle? I mean, they explain it well enough in the plot. Do they? <laughs> the answer is so that Basil Rathbone can swing on a rope and knock the monster into it at the end. <laughs> I'm not done talking about this fucking sulfur pit. <laughs> Apparently there's also caves down there. Apparently there's caves down there where Igor used to climb down there so he could sleep during cold winters. <laughs> just, think about, just think about this. Bella Lugosi, dressed up as a fucking crazy dude, on a fucking December night is like, oh, it's chilly. Better try to climb through this fucking sulfur pit so I can stay warm in this little cave. Hope I don't fall in and die. Yeah, you know, as described as that room would boil you alive. (laughs) So it's really fucking warm in there. On the other hand, uh, molten sulfur is blood red, so it would actually look really cool. Yeah, uh, this film was uh, originally intended to be shot in Technicolor. Mm. Oh, that's true, yeah. They ended up uh, not for various reasons. Mm-hmm. Including that uh, Frankenstein, Frankenstein's monster would be gray. Yeah, to my understanding, they they either took some photos or shot some film in color. And they looked at, you know, whatever they had shot. And the Jack Pierce makeup for the monster was like, you know, green, gray. And they looked at it and they were like, oh, this just looks terrible. So uh, they they elected mm. to shoot it in, in black and white. But it would have been really nice to uh, to see this movie um, akin to um, uh, the the reasonably new release of Crimson Peak, which I uh, adore. <laughs> mm. So at the end of Son of Frankenstein, as I mentioned, um, all the villagers cheer 
when Wolf von Frankenstein goes out of town on a train. But joke's on them, because in the next Frankenstein movie, just another Frankenstein son rolls up on a different train. (laughs) (laughs) And he's played by the only man with a more British name than Basil Rathbone, Cedric Hardwick. No. Really, seriously. Christ. So uh, from here on out, the Frankenstein series would go on to be very long running. There would be eight entries in total through the 30s and 40s. From here on out, they would basically decline precipitously. As we've alluded to in the past, this was the final Frankenstein film where Boris Karloff would play the monster. In a later film, he would play some kind of mad doctor or something in House of Frankenstein. But this was the last time he played the monster. And from here on out, the characterization of the monster would would decline more and more until basically, you know, he was just like a big dumb automaton. I do have to I do have to ask, does anyone know how how much of um Karloff's scenes were replaced by a just, just a dummy? There was a lot of scenes where where the monster was just was motionless and was just transported from place to place. <laughs> I don't know. That's that's an interesting question. Um, there was one moment uh, I distinctly recall from the film in which Frankenstein's monster had uh, stolen the shitty child and was about to throw him into the sulfur pit. And we were all were cheering. Yeah, we were all like, yeah. Uh, but he like picks the kid up, and I thought it was a dummy, and then he like puts it dead and starts moving again. And I was like, oh, that was actually just the child. <laughs> <laughs> But I think that, you know, there's parallels to be drawn between the Frankenstein series and the long-running 80s slasher franchises like Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the 13th (laughs) in that, you know, after this movie... Universal was basically putting out a new Frankenstein movie every year, which is exactly like the Friday the 13th series, where they put out a new movie in every year of the 80s, except like one of them. Oh, so it's like Saw. (laughs) Oh, yeah, exactly. But like, you look at like Friday the 13th, where by installment number seven, it's literally just comedy, you know, and everyone involved knows that this is a joke that they're just doing to squeeze money out of teenagers. And that's that's a lot like the Frankenstein series. Uh, in fact, the final entry in the Frankenstein series is Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein, which is the capstone on basically the entire golden age of horror, where the whole thing is just a joke. But also, uh, we'll get to that, I guess. Speaking of Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein, didn't they also start doing, like, slasher movie crossovers? Didn't they have, like, Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They... Like, Freddy versus Jason? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, they made Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman. And then the next two, uh, House of Frankenstein and House of Dracula, all feature multiple movie monsters. And in fact, uh, my old friend, hey, it's John Carradine, <laughs> plays Dracula in both uh, House of Frankenstein and House of Dracula. Huh. Well, gang, uh, do we want to, is there anything else we want to say about Son of Frankenstein? Uh, what's the moral of this movie, guys? Don't let kids in your movie. <laughs> oh my god, please. Um, for me, the moral is, uh, if you got a sulfur pit somewhere... Make sure you can kick someone into it. All you have to do is cut off your arm uh, and then get a wooden prosthetic, and then you have a great place to put your darts. <laughs> <laughs> so he actually did some really decent darts throwing. Um, side note. Yeah, oh, way better at darts than I am. <laughs> he, like, casually threw one right in the middle and, like, wasn't looking at the board. But I would have been really excited. <laughs> <laughs> that first shot of him where he's, like, it's a close-up, like, on the actual board where before he pulls out like he has three like within like two seconds in a row within like an inch of each other i was like unsure whether or not he was actually throwing them and then i watched him throw them like six times in a row so (laughs) very cool no stunt doubles here (laughs) (laughs) well gang would uh we recommend 
Son of Frankenstein. Wholeheartedly. Yeah, absolutely. Eh. I'm, I'm still kind of mad on it. <laughs> well, you, you don't enjoy joy. I don't. So, Thad, would you recommend this? Uh, I would. I would. I, I thought this, I think this movie's a hoot and a good uh, way to get into the second phase of our golden age of horror, which is going to be uh, a lot of fun. I'm re- actually really looking forward to some of the movies we're going to watch up ahead. So next week, gang, uh, we're going to take a look at 1940. This is our first of two episodes we're going to be looking at 1940. Uh, we're going to be watching The Invisible Man Returns and The Mummy's Hand. Wait, hold on. I have one important thing to say. Um, it's back (laughs) well gang i think we're gonna wrap it up please if you like the show become a patron uh every little bit helps uh www.patreon.com slash spookorama yep follow us on twitter at spookorama you can email us at spookoramapodcast.gmail.com feel free to leave a comment on soundcloud uh, leave a review on itunes that really helps us out makes us feel good it makes us feel like we're not living in a horrible empty void yeah and um i'd like to make sure we thank our new patreon donors i know right now we've uh just introduced thad's dad to patreon and uh one other who whose name i don't remember uh andrew Maisley. he's just his old uh roommate. hey it's here for andy and my dad hi andy thanks dad and to all dads thank you <laughs> <laughs> well anyhow gang uh, I hope you had fun. I know I did. This has been another great episode. I hope. Burns <laughs> is shaking his head now. God damn it. So uh, thank you all so much out there in podcast land for tuning in. And uh, I hope you tune in again next time. So, uh, well, say goodbye, folks. Goodbye, folks. Also, I'm still a ghost. All right. Goodbye, guys. Uh, see you, guys. Vaya con Dios. Bye, everyone. How can I try to explain When I do, he turns away again It's always been the same Same old story From the moment I could talk I was ordered to listen Now there's a way And I know that I have to go away I know I have to go away